Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. When I was at the turning point in my career, I didn't want to cook in regular restaurants, and I didn't know what I was going to cook. I didn't know what my identity was. So I was like, well, I worked in Japanese restaurants, French restaurants, California restaurants, but what kind of food do I want to cook? And I, that's when I had Sichuan food for the first time with Brandon Ju in San Francisco. And I was like, oh, this is it. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. When Mission Chinese opened in New York in a crowded, slightly dank, subterranean space on Orchard Street a decade ago, the food world collectively paused to praise the inventive and fully out there cooking of a young chef named Danny Bowen. On this episode, we catch up with Danny to hear about the exciting decade that followed and what it was like to close his last mission location out in Brooklyn. We also talk about the 2020 Grub Street article that painted a portrait of abuse in the kitchens under his watch. And we dive into his great new cookbook, Mission Vegan. This episode is a long time coming, and I hope you enjoy it. Danny Bowen, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I've wanted to have you in for a long time. I'm, I've been a long follower of Mission. Uh, I mean, I've been to the SF location, but I, I wow. mean, the New York locations. Like, I have to ask. Like, we're sitting here in August 2022, and there isn't a Mission in New York, right? What? How are you feeling? Um, well, you know, it's it's always difficult. You know, I've been asked this question a lot, yeah. And so it's hard not to go on autopilot. And just say the same. Let's response. not do it. Let's, but, let's be normal. <laughs> but 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 so I've been able to. Everyone asked that question, and so um, and honestly, you know, it's always sad to close something that you really care deeply about that you love. And but you know, I I do kind of look at it from this perspective of you know all good things come to an end eventually, and I do feel very fortunate and uh, thankful that we were able to uh, end on a high note. You know, because a lot of the I've had a lot of restaurants in Manhattan and New York in the past like ten years, and um, closing can be. I've had a lot of different experiences with mm-hmm. it. You know, um, abruptly, um, not on our terms. You know, and so in this in this we had a lot of lead time, and I'm really just thankful for the staff and the experience that we got out of it for the last uh, month. You know that we yeah. announced it and. So I feel good. Like, if you want to know how I'm feeling, I'm feeling, like, settled. Um, you know, I feel really healthy and, like, you know, I, I, I've i been able to process a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's 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 a hard thing. It's, it's, it's sad, but also I think it just comes along with the territory. I mean, li- operating in New York is, like, a small business. It's, it's such a challenge. I, so. I, and so you closed your, your location in Brooklyn, uh, and you had, you'd had you run at, we, we can talk about the three locations, you, mm-hmm. four locations, including uh, Cucina, yeah. which you, you ran uh-huh. uh, in New York. But uh-huh. I have to ask about just mission in general. I mean, like particularly the Orchard Street location, which yeah. is where I kind of got to know it. Yeah. And, and really you were all about 
breaking the mold and breaking the boundary for, for what the way that Chinese and Szechuan food and Korean food and it could all mash. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel the pressure of having to reinvent continually with, with, the, with these menus? I didn't, you know, if you were talking about the Orchard Street location, yeah. I didn't feel that then because it was so new. You know, we kind of got like shot through this canon of um, expectation and success. Uh, again, which I'm extremely grateful for, was unprepared. Um, but at that time, I didn't feel the pressure for a constant reinvention because, you know, it's it, we were, it was all new. And so I feel like the I was all I've always been driven by, especially with when Mission Chinese food uh, was just the main focus. And when we first moved here, you know, I, I'm lucky enough as a Korean adoptee from Oklahoma. And I talk about that in the book and like finding being able to find my identity. A lot of chefs do this. They find their identity through the food they cook. Um, for me, especially with Mission Chinese, like I had never been trained to cook Chinese food. And so Sichuan food, especially, I think we talked about this in the first cookbook, was the vehicle, because we were doing mm-hmm. at the time a pop-up inside of a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco called Longshan. Mm-hmm. And I was just like endlessly intimidated by the fact that I was cooking in a Chinese restaurant, but the owners are Cantonese. So I was like, well, oh, and I was really obsessed with Sichuan food. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, maybe if I cook something they don't eat. They don't eat, they don't, would not eat Sichuan food. They didn't like spicy food. And so I was like, well, I'll just do this. So then they can't say you're making it so wrong. So you famously had two menus. Yeah. That was, yeah, the, that was, exactly. the, that was the, the, the way you operate. Because I was in love with their, their menu. And I was like, I just really want to eat your food, yeah. but I don't, I'm too scared to cook it. I was intimidated by it. So my, my perspective this whole time, I guess, to go back to the question is like, I've been able to find my, about, a lot about myself through the food that I cook. And so there wasn't a need for reinvention necessarily at the time at Orchard Street because it was really about um, just discovery. The Orchard Street location, famously some of the hottest, spiciest food you would find. Did you? I mean, really like like bombing people with with spice and and you know a real uh, euphoric feeling walking out of there sometimes with the spice. Did mm-hmm. you ever feel like you spiced too too much? Did you ever take it too too? <laughs> too far what a question <laughs> i mean i think in my personal life i was spicing it too much at that time yeah, and i yeah. still was like drinking and like you know uh just do all the doing all the things that you know i could to kind of like deal i didn't know how to deal with the success at the time mm-hmm. and so i was self-medicating and coping in really unhealthy ways um but as far as like spicing people too much it's funny because i didn't have reference point at that point i'd never been to chengdu i've never mm-hmm. worked in a sichuan restaurant and I didn't really even know what I was doing. So I was like, well, I think that this should taste like this. I've tasted it here at this restaurant. Maybe this chili will work. Uh, subsequently later, when I filmed My Mind of a Chef, I was, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I'd love to go do three things. Well, I would love to cook for two specific types of people. I'd love to cook for a Korean grandmother because I want to see how that tracks and if mm. they will approve of what I do because um, I'm Korean, but I didn't grow up in Korea. And I also want to cook for a Sichuan master chef. Cause, I love that. And I just threw myself in the fire. And I went to go cook for Yubo in, in the Sichuan province, and that was just an amazing experience. You write about that in your book, Mission Vegan. You write about it. It's and when great. I came back, I realized, yeah, we were making things way too spicy. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it, there, was an, like, there was a missing nuance, but at the same time, um, 
there was, uh, I remember when Anthony Bourdain brought in Eric Repair, and um, he did it because he wanted to kind of torture Eric mm-hmm. Repair because Eric didn't eat a lot of spicy food yeah. at the time. And uh, Eric, I saw him on his way to the bathroom, and he was just like sweating. He's like, "What the hell did you put in those wings?" But then <laughs> later, you know, he every time I see Eric, we always talk about that experience because he's like, he called Tony the next day. I was like, "We got to go back." Like I'm yeah. hooked. That feeling is crazy. It's a euphoric, almost like you're on drugs, kind of. I mean, mala, that's that's definitely what you're doing there. You're like kind of you're hitting from two different angles with like tingle and heat. Yeah. So it's not just like singular monolithic heat. You know, and as a young cook, when I was at the turning point in my career, I didn't want to cook in regular restaurants, and I didn't know what I was going to cook. I didn't know what my identity was, so I was like, "Well, I worked in Japanese restaurants, French restaurants, California restaurants, but what type of food do I want to cook?" And I—that's when I had Sichuan food for the first time with Brandon Jew in San Francisco, and I was like, "Oh, this is it!" Because I, all the line cooks I knew in California were going to eat at this one restaurant, Spices Two, on their day off, because it wasn't what we were doing. We, Dan no Holzman and I that. wrote about Spices Two for Savora. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Spices Two, wow, what a place! Amazing, I love that place. Incredible. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah. Next time I'm there. Let's talk about cooking in the physical space on Orchard Street. I think I can't remember. It was a Thai restaurant before. I can't remember what it, it was. It was a Thai restaurant before. Yeah, and you know, blindly, you know, I was Ooh. a. Uh, Wide-eyed, naive kid from California, and came here and saw the space. Like, we'll take it, you know. Such um, a rat hole. I mean, it really literally. had literally had rats. It was yeah. a rat's nest. So yeah. it, the the back of the space was an illegal structure. It was a beer garden that they had enclosed with a plywood roof, which I didn't know. Was that Michael Bowen's a BA garden? B- I believe B- garden. I, it was. Uh, we bought it from someone else, but yeah, I think it may have been that before. And what happened was because it was a semi-permanent space that was enclosed. You know, that that area was going through a lot of development at the time. So right behind us, they started digging to put in, like, a, a hotel or something. And, you know, in New York, when you dig, the rats come out. So, um, it, But it had, I mean, it, it really, Mission Chinese food in New York was Orchard Street. I mean, before, yeah. I mean, the East Broadway location, its own longevity and moments and really beautiful restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Orchard always will be Orchard. Uh, yeah, it's always, it's like the first album. I always say that. Like, people are always <laughs> yes. like, you know, and I have friends now, you know, that are opening new restaurants and they're doing the same thing. They have the small, tiny thing that has a line out the door that's packed night after night and they're all, they're like, we've got to open a bigger one, a better one. And I'm like, you might want to stay. It's nothing wrong with staying small. We only moved because we had to. I love that location, but the space was unworkable and it was actually not a legal structure. <laughs> East so we Broadway had, had so many mirrors. Oh, you, like, you inherited so many mirrors. Oh, yeah. Actually, we bought those mirrors. Those, okay. are, those are from Ikea. Okay, respect you yeah. for building the mirrors. I thought for whatever reason the original space and the location was mirrors. but Yeah, yeah. We loved the, I love the mirrored hallway down there. I always like thought like you know bathrooms were they're such a cool place to be created. And and so we thought that the bathrooms there were downstairs. So we're like, let's make a long mirrored hallway. I just absolutely love what you were doing. And so mm-hmm. we haven't spoken since October 2020 when a story in Grub Street was written about you and your op- operation and about abuses in your kitchen under your watch. Mm-hmm. You personally were not um, complicit with the actual abuse, just to be mm-hmm. clear. And, and you can go back and read that. But still... It was a, a tough time, a very difficult time for your staff, and you've publicly recognized and apologized for this. So I have to ask you about this uh, this moment, and and upon reflection, you've written about it in your book. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. You know, yeah, what a difficult time. Um, and of course, I wasn't. I sat here, and I look at that as a. It was a very difficult time in my life. It was a, a huge, growth point for me, uh, a big learning experience. You know, what it did for me, that specific time in my life, uh, there were a lot of things going on, but 
it forced me to stop and to listen. And I think that's what people wanted for me as an owner. Um, and, you know, as a chef, especially on the trajectory that I've been on, I'm, and most chefs aren't really used to stopping and slowing down, being patient or just listening, you know. And so I'm fortunate, uh, you know, I try to look at the upside of every situation. Um, and I look at that situation and I, I listened and I was able to take what happened and the feedback that I got and put it into practice when we reopened in Bushwick post-COVID and really work with that team to really create something special that was, you know, this industry has been spoken about a lot and I it, mm-hmm. endlessly about how flawed it is and how there's so many problems intrinsically within. It takes a certain time of person to work in hospitality. It's, dra- it's traumatized in the bear. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, like a TV show. So, like, so, you know, and, it, and we were like, okay, well, there isn't an overnight solution, but what can we do to fix the problem within our own four walls? And, and we were able to, you know, it just takes time. It takes yeah. time. It takes listening. It takes really amazing people to help support you and your vision. And, you know, I, I'm very proud of what we built at Bushwick. You know, um, that was like, again, like I said earlier, going out on a high note. That was the best team I've ever worked with. And, but yes, like, um, it was a very difficult time mm-hmm. for me. And, um, what, yeah. So what in Bushwick, what changes did you make? Because I, I don't think I, from my prep for this, I didn't read much about the changes you made. So tell us, like, what what, what were some of the changes and, and what values do you do you seek in a manager now when you're opening? I'm sure you'll open something again. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I can speak about the changes post-COVID, post that article. Yeah. You know, I mean, that article coming out was really a crystallization of there was so much um, – circulating and you know I'm I'm in many ways I'm thankful that that article came out because there are a lot of staff members that were even involved in that lawsuit and allegations that reached out to me personally and we were able to have conversations and and talk about um, this offline and not publicly um, I'm very grateful for that um, I think the changes that were made you know Business-wise, I mean, you can say I'll punch the, you know, check the box. It's like mm. you have HR, you have all these things that you really tie, you know, tie up. But like for me, what really changed was being able to be very available to the staff, um, listening to them, um, because you know I think it almost worked in reverse when we were like, okay, we're just going to get a big HR. Let's have a big HR push and like have people have this like these different like channels mm-hmm. they can. They can work through. I mean, these are the the restaurant industry and the staff. They really just wanted to speak to the owner. So we we listened. So being available was something I'm hearing that you changed when you opened Bushwick is being available and having um, a clear line of communication with your staff. Yes. I mean, like the porters, the bussers, the the whole staff. Well, Bushwick was already open before that that article came out. And so it was after that article came out that we were like, okay, let's let's refocus and Let's let's hear what people have to say. What do they want? How do they see that this could be a better operation? And really listening to them. I think beyond that, it's like to answer your other question is like, what do you look for in a manager? Yeah. And I think what we're talking about is just communication, right? The number one thing you look for, and I look for in a manager, is their communication skills. Because skill set can kind of be taught. You know, mm-hmm. I don't even like I don't even know. I, I can, I'll be the first person to tell you I'm not your expert when it comes to making a lot of different types of food. But it's like, what is your communication like? Because I think that really is key to have being a good leader. Um, outside of that, you know, like organizational skills and, you know, but like it's really just 
How well do you communicate? Are you a good listener? Yep. In the book, you write openly about since the first iteration of mission back in SF, you got married, had a child, got sober, and then got divorced. You know, that's a lot of change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. And you're, you're open about it. And I, I respect that. And thank you for being open about uh, the article. Yeah. Uh, my question, how does that, through going through all this life change, does it change your cooking? Does it change the Danny Bowen food that's coming out? Does all this change? I mean, especially sobriety. I'd like to know about that. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I've... You know, when I was younger, I just turned 40. So, like, this was all Welcome thank to you, the club. Thank you. So, like, 10 years is actually, like, <laughs> you think, you know, when you're younger, you're like, oh, 10 years is, like, nothing. You know, but then you're 40 and you're like, wow, like, that, the last, my 30s, I did this. This is what I've done. And all this stuff happened in my, through my 30s. And so I look at it kind of from the other side of the coin where I'm like, well, that was actually a long time. And a lot of changes. You know, what were you doing, you know, 10 years ago? That's like a, a lot of change happens. Damn. Um, Bad fashion, 2012. Right. <laughs> 2012 is like. It's cool again now, though. You, you'd be surprised. Kind it's of kind cool. of insane. Um, yeah, all over prints are okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, um, but yeah, I mean, the change is like something like for a long time, I was this kind of person that was like, there's going to be this moment that happens that will like crystallize or this is going to be a catalyst where everything's going to be okay, you know? And I had this fear of things not being okay. And so I think that having the rub, rug pulled from beneath you and with the divorce and, like, you know, the closing of restaurants, the lawsuits, everything, you know, like, you kind of realize that this is just part of growing up. It's a mm-hmm. part of life. Or that's how I look at it. And so, um, you know, I look at it as growth points. Has it affected my cooking? Like, quite certainly. Like, <laughs> it's, it's... But I think that more than anything... The sobriety and like not like medicating in unhealthy ways um, has really affected the way I cook. And there was a point too where when all of this stuff was happening, I was like, "Am I self sabotaging? Is is all this stuff happening because of me, mm. or does this need to happen?" And I think it's the the second. You know, I think it was. I've, I've concluded that you know this was going to happen. This is just my journey in life. Does the the food change intrinsically? Does does the does your palate change? I mean, I, I've I've not had alcohol in like seven years mm-hmm. and, and my my palate's changed I yeah. think over time yeah since then I think with alcohol and when you mix it with food it it, it changes mm-hmm. the way you oh, taste so how about I mean this is your this is your trade I mean you're, mm-hmm. you're cooking and how does sobriety change well I think from an operational standpoint it made it a lot more difficult because I wasn't able to just go to work and just you know you feel like you're freer because you're just imbibing and indulging mm-hmm. Uh, when things get hard, you get a drink or whatever. And some people can handle it. Like, I'm not here to say you shouldn't drink. I'm just not good at it personally. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think a lot of it changed for me. A lot of the, my perspective from an operation standpoint is that, like, there's a certain point in food and beverage where, you know, it's not just about the food. It's about the experience. It's about sometimes it's about the beverage, and that can have an effect on – I'll be at dinner sometimes, and I'll mm-hmm. be like, this is okay. But, like, people are having the best time, and it's like, you know, we're – to the fourth course, and I'm like, mm-hmm. everyone's had like four glasses of wine. They're having yeah. a great time. So it's not about the food always. So I think in that way, I have been able to recenter and be like, okay, it's about the experience. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that component of a dining experience. So you're, but let's talk about the book. I, I really wanted to have you in to talk about the book Mission Vegan. And mm-hmm. and just from the jump, I mean, it's a great book, but Thank you're you. not a vegan. You're not a card-carrying no. member of the club. Your restaurants weren't vegan. Mm-hmm. So I guess from the jump, why write about plant-based cooking that's a good question i mean i i have something i've always been like drawn to not always you know i did spend the first half of my career being just like most other egotistical line cooks that are like (laughs) fuck vegans fuck vegetarianism my way or the highway but then i realized you know it's a lot harder 
It, uh, look, chefs love a challenge. You mm-hmm. know, they love, I love, and kind of to your last question about like, you know, sobriety and how's that affected my cooking, it's like taking certain elements away. That's like a really big part of uh, confidence building and like, what can you do more with less? And so for the cookbook, you know, for the past couple of years, prior to the cookbook at Mission, we were always trying to make, we always had like a plant-based diet or a, uh, I mean, a plant-based menu, menu yeah. that people could choose you from because a lot of people had dietary restrictions. And also it's just the path of least resistance. We, we could turn tables faster if we could just be like, okay, here's this mm-hmm. instead of having to go and ask in the kitchen and can you modify this or that. And it's also funner. And so, mm-hmm. you know, my, my outlook is that you don't have to be vegan to eat vegan. Like that's, I, I'm not, that's my perspective. You know, it's for everyone. So if we do caterings or offsites, you know, I always will try to do, you know, typically vegan and typically like uh, nut and gluten-free. Not gluten-free always, but nut-free if yeah. we can. Just I mean, it's path of least resistance and it's a great business plan. And if you can make it delicious, and I want to ask you some specific questions about the, the recipes in the book. But, sure. you know, if it's about making the food taste great and, and you know, the animal products needed or not, it, it's not really important if it tastes great. So, yeah. I, I mean, kimchi, huge part of this book. I've written with Duki Hong, Koreatown, yeah. and working on our second book. So we're, we're always thinking about kimchi. And I encountered in your chive kimchi, which I mm-hmm. love. I mean, chive kimchi is some of the best kimchi. You use shiokoji, mm-hmm. which is less common. Yeah. I mean, usually you're not using koji. So how did you come across this, and what is koji doing to kimchi? So we use koji at um, – I've used koji ex- quite ex- – not extensively, but I first learned about it when I was uh, – working in Japanese restaurants in San Francisco. Then, obviously, Noma really popularized the use of koji. Yeah, what is koji? Sorry, I should back up so a little bit. Like a, it's like a – I'm sorry, I'm blinking right now. But it's like a um, – I look at it as almost like a bread starter for the, yeah. we're, how we're using it in the chai of kimchi. But it's a mold, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And so it's grown on rice spores. And – you can you're gonna have to correct this later probably. Like <laughs> no, but like again we're rolling with it. I'm an I'm a student, so it's like but yeah. like in our application, what we use this for is as a, basically a, the starter yeah. for the kimchi where you would use like a salted shrimp yeah. or something like that. And what Koji does in this chive kimchi specifically is it adds a certain sweetness, um, also an umami to it. I like some of these kimchi recipes in the book because you can eat them fresh or you can also eat them after three or four days. And koji does develop over time. The flavor does mm-hmm. change when you eat it instantly versus a couple of days. Yeah, out. I love using koji over uh, over shrimp or over fish sauce. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the common starters in the typical beju kimchi or the other kimchis from mm-hmm. Korea. I mean, what do you think about using a Japanese product in a Korean uh, dish? You know, there was a lot of that. You know, I wanted to be very respectful to, again, I was very uh, cautious going into making this book because I'm mm-hmm. Korean, but, you know, I'm Korean by heritage, but I grew up in the U.S. and yeah. I was adopted. And when I go to Korea, like, it's always very confusing because I don't speak the language. And, you know, so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making this book that was disrespectful to Korean culture. I wanted to obviously pay homage to it and just dive in head first because there's a lot of the moments where I've – I didn't have Korean food till I was 19 where I was there scratching my head and being like, this is like – what I should have been eating growing up instead of in Oklahoma eating hamburger helper for every mm-hmm. meal. And so to, that, you know, there's obviously like a lot of like um, reverence and respect paid to the cuisine and making sure that we're, I didn't want to cross any wires. And so I did often, the person I spot checked this with the most is my son's mother, Young Me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Young Me, what do you think? Like, you, am I going to make people mad? Also, the other thing was like, I'm not vegan. So I wanted to make sure I was 
definitely out the gate saying like, you know, this is for everyone and I'm obsessed with being able to take this challenge on and yeah. it's something I really am passionate about. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll wait and see. It's a wait and see kind of thing. Like, I hope people aren't, uh, I, like, they take it in the, like, look at me as a fan and also as a student of, like, I think it, it comes across as a fan. That's the way um, I, I look at it as well. I'm certainly not Korean, but I'm a fan of Korean cuisine and I try to show that in the work. And one dish that really comes to mind that really excites me as a fan of Korean food is your vegan gamjatang. Mm-hmm. And you made, which is typically a pork neck stew, but mm-hmm. with potatoes, but you're doing it in a vegan way. And I love that you, you refer to it as baked potato soup at Chili's. That was your reference yeah. point. Again, Talk, I love this. There's these, so, all these, again, like I'm feeling very fortunate about, like I learn about myself through my journey, my journey of like eating food, you know? And so like there are these moments where I won't realize until later, I'm like, this reminds me of something that I ate growing up. And all I ate growing up in Oklahoma, for the most part, the fanciest meal I would go eat was um, we would go to, like, Olive Garden. That was, like, mm. very fancy for us, and that was a special yeah. occasion kind of meal, or, like, chilies, you know? And, like, uh, it did hit this... There's sometimes where I'll be tasting something, and, like, this really reminds me of that. And this dish reminded me of having this, like, kind of, like, luscious, uh, like, indulgent baked potato soup um, in a way that was very comforting and, like, nourishing... Uh, it, also very just satisfying yeah. um but yeah like it's funny i said that to jj when we were writing the book and he was like oh yeah we're gonna i was like you don't have to put that there he's like no this is great this is great this oh is great. He absolutely just like, he loved it every time i would talk about that or like you know uh taco bell or something he'd be like oh we can use that like, yeah oh. shout out jj good yeah. great friend of taste and collaborator yeah. uh, so what is vegan gumption to you let's take us through that dish because i i think it's just such a beautiful dish and with pork but how are you doing it you know, I think that like what I what I I always like think of like flavor profiles when I'm you know that sounds silly, but like when I think of eating that soup, I think of what are the main like three things that I taste when I taste it. And the first time I had it was in Korea. Um, I was I think it was like the day after I got married or something like that. Mm. I was very hungover, and uh, my then wife Youngmi was like, "Oh, you need to go eat gumchitang. It's like a hangover soup. It's like really good for you. Um, it'll help you feel better." And and it's this pork neck, pork bone soup. It was like almost like thick, but not mm-hmm. thick because it had been stewed down for a long time. But it was almost thickened because of these perilla seeds. Perilla seeds always is on top yeah, of it, tense. and then and then also there were torn perilla leaves in it. So I got from that soup. I got spice. I got a lot of umami. And a lot of like there was pretty salty, which was mm-hmm. good for the hangover. Mm-hmm. And then um, I taste the texture of this perilla seed. It almost made it like a silky, like like almost like a like a like a kind of like a velouté or like a mm-hmm. thickened soup. But it's like wasn't super, super thick, um, the one that I had. And then uh, the torn sesame leaves. So I got that herbaceousness from the sesame leaves, uh, the pearl leaves, and then I got the the powder, which gave it that like I like, love nice the, texture. the the finely ground pearly seeds. Yeah, that's yeah. what you got to find. And it's just on top. You don't mm-hmm. mix it in, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I would make it subsequently, like later. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna try this out, and her and her mom would be like, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. You gotta <laughs> do it. And so like for this, it was like, okay, let's like re redial that and yeah. like look at like those three or four components that really came through to me, and then you just do it without meat. I can't wait to cook that one. Yeah. Uh, do you visit Korea? Do you, do you make yeah. it there quite a bit? Well, yeah. How do you visit Korea these days? Well, I've been fortunate enough to visit quite a few times. I mean, I, yeah. the first time I went, um, the first couple of times I went was when I was um, engaged, and then um, actually I went there for my wedding um, when I was married, and then um, I actually was able to take an amazing trip with Emeril Agassi, um, <laughs> That's and right. That was amazing, and we went to go work with um, Jun Kwan, uh, the Buddhist monk, 
Um, yep, from Chef's Table. From yep. Chef's Table. Yep. And then um, I also shot my television show, uh, Mind of a Chef, there. Yeah. Um, and I really I got to cook for, like, you know, what I think that was probably more intimidating or I wanted the validation and the cosign more than even cooking for Yubo was when I cooked for this Korean grandmother mm. in her apartment in Korea. And I was just like, this is what I make. This is who I am. Is this okay? Yeah. You know? And so. What was, the, what was the verdict? She was like very kind and polite. And she was like, yes, like this works. Cause I was like, this is like my beef tartare I'm making and I'm pulling on like, like you know, UK, like, like, yeah, a UK? like UK. Yeah. yeah. But like, um, but I make it as a lettuce cup and Sam in New York. And like, what do you think? And so, but I had this really connected moment with her and it was amazing. Um, and then, yeah, I've done other events there. I've done pop-ups in Korea. Cool. I love Seoul. I was there with Chad from Tartine when he was, like, <laughs> about to open the Tartine Bakery there, which is really amazing. Yeah, I need to visit that. So that's cool. I, I, I didn't realize you'd been there subsequent times since the filming. That's great. Yeah. Do you have plans to go in the future? I mean, the first year. Actually, my son is going there. Um, they're leaving um, in eight days, I think, to mm. go for, like, a month or so. Oh, cool. So, um, wow, what a great experience for him. I know. I mean, I'd love to try to make it out there. Uh, it's just, you know, I, I would love to get back as soon as I can. So I have to ask you a few more questions sure. uh, about the book because you use shiitake mushroom powder throughout it. And I, mm-hmm. I buy that at H Mart or I buy mm-hmm. I've gotten it in Korea. Um, and I sometimes don't quite know what I'm going to do with it. Mm-hmm. But I love it. It's like the mo- it's like a mommy. It's plant-based. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, it's basically it? I just tell people it's like a, it's like a soup powder. You know, yeah. growing up in Oklahoma, like eating uh, a lot of the food that I would cook, at a certain point I was responsible for cooking dinner. And um, we would look – I would cook around like a bouillon cube basically. Every mm-hmm. meal was made around that. Or like hamburger helpers basically just – you know, it has that – that all these spices and things in it. And this is kind of like a spice – say it's like a spice-free – Soup seasoning, um, just much like if you had like a, uh, I used to use like hondashi a lot mm-hmm. uh, or dashida, which is the Korean like soup stock. But this one we've been using, I first found out about this specific mushroom powder, which we talk about in the book quite a bit. And there's a picture of it, but we got it from a Vietnamese grocer when we were doing uh, Mission Street Food. Uh, we got it from Amanda and Howard at Duck Loy up the street. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. we were looking for a, I wanted it back then even like we needed like a, an alternative to their chicken bouillon powder that the Chinese dude restaurant. So this is for your vegetarian side or dish. Yeah, we, we ended up using it in everything. At oh, cool! Because it just we were like, well, let's just take the path of least resistance. We yeah. don't want to be stocking two things, so we just only bought mushroom powder. But it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing product, and um, you can really make a lot of amazing things out of it. I, I love experimenting with it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go deeper with it. One thing that comes to mind after reading this book is like, what the fuck? Like grapefruit gojujan. I love this oh, yeah. concept. Yeah, it's cool. I, it's so fresh. Tell, talk about grapefruit gojujan. You know, with that one came about. I think we were running like a fried chicken special, and uh, and I was like, wow, you know what? What should we do here? And we had a lot of grapefruit. I like citrus like day one. Like when you cut it open, like it's, oh yeah, you can't. After the first day, it kind of, like, loses something, and it would definitely loses something. And so we had a lot of grapefruit sediments from our for a dessert we were doing at the time. I was like, well, let's just preserve it in this gochujang. Let's see what happens. And um, I was hooked. I love the acidity of it. It kind of reminded me of, like, a, a sauce that you would eat with sashimi in Korea. Um, yeah, with, like, like the huay sauce, like yes. chojang or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, well, let's instead of vinegar, let's just use the natural acidity of the grapefruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it does last, like, I think in the book it says, like, four days or something is, like, the life on that. It, it stays good longer. You just kind of lose that pop, you mm-hmm. know. But I think it's a really creative. I love getting, like, bites of, you know. In, the flesh. Because, because we're so, I'm so used, to, I'm not that used to it, but at this point I'm I'm more used to eating, 
you know, gochujang as a sauce and like a bibimbap or something mm-hmm. like that. But like having that surprise, like that burst of like juice and 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 it, it's amazing. So you're just yeah. taking like a supremed or, or chopped up uh, grapefruit and yep. you're putting it with the, the red tub, the standard issue gochujang? Yeah, there's some other seasonings. We thin it a little bit and it, it, at first it does seem thick, but as the grapefruit kind of sets in there, yeah. it essentially cures because there's a lot of salt in, go, in gochujang. Yeah. Um, it releases its own juice and kind of makes a, like a vinaigrette almost. Exactly. That sounds great. I, and maybe a little vinegar in there? Like rice vinegar? I mean, yeah, I believe so. And it's also great because, you know, all the recipes from the book the first cookbook was amazing, but it was a restaurant cookbook. And I look back at that now, and I'm yeah. like, you know, you ask, like, has your cooking changed over the past 10 years? I'm like, yeah, like, I'm not writing books now that call for you to get a couple gallons of duck fat and be a whole duck at home before <laughs> wrapping it in clay. So like, funny. That I was look a- back, and I'm like, what was I doing? Even the mapo tofu recipe, you know, it takes an hour now, whereas before it was a couple-day process. Um, so for you, no restaurants in New York. You've got the book coming out soon. Mm-hmm. So what's what's up? Like, what are you going to be cooking somewhere? Like, where are we going to uh, have your food? I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I don't think restaurants. I don't think I'm going to own my own restaurant. Yeah, again. I think that um, you know, never say never. But at right now, it's like I'm just very uncertain. And for the first time in my life, really, um, it's kind of okay for me to say like I don't know. I mean, obviously, I need to work and 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 do something, but yeah, um, you know, I don't know, and you know, I think we've all a lot. Everyone's kind of had. Most people have had this existential crisis where they're like, I don't know, what what am I, mm-hmm. what am I even doing this for? What is the point? Ultimately, I want to help people. I love cooking. I know I'm not gonna become a fitness instructor. Or something, yeah, you know? I was gonna like, say, I'm gonna like, always do something with food. Oh, so you kind of want to cook, yeah, right? Yeah, I need somewhere? to do. I I know what I I love cooking. I yeah. love food, and I'll always do something with food. Um, I was doing a talking to someone yesterday about this, and they're like, "What would you do if you could do anything?" And I was like, "I don't. I mean, I feel like I would probably do like a food-based travel show. I love connecting with people. I love being that. My experience with Mind of a Chef was amazing. Being able to just mm-hmm. like be a fly on the wall and, and absorb information. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know if I. I don't. I just am not. I don't think I would want to do another restaurant right now. Do you miss working the line at all? Like working like a, a, a busy Saturday? Do you miss that? I feel like there are elements of it that I miss. Uh, I'm old now. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's, you know, the, for the first couple of hours, it's great. And then after a while, it's like, it, you know, and I do try to, I'm very into, like, you know, trying to take care of myself yeah. and work out and everything. But it's, it is difficult to be on your feet and be in that environment. Um, I do enjoy the team and I enjoy, like, being going into, there's always a resolve. It's like, it's almost like playing sports where there's always an outcome. Like you go into this thing, mm-hmm. you prepare as best as you can. Multiple things will or can go wrong and you try to, to recover as quickly as possible. And then at the end of the night, it's over and you do it all. Do again. it again. That's yeah. the toughest part about that job. Danny, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could work on a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds or the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, mm-hmm. what would that book be? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of that. I could say a project more than a book. Sure. I, I mean, we can to, we can we can extend it outside of like the actual like binding of paper and that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think restaurants are like something where I've always I've always wanted to create something where it's for everyone. You know, and I think this cookbook really does speak to that. Where you know you it's we trying to make it for everyone. And um, I think the idea I've been seeing more about like like nonprofit restaurants. I saw one there. I think it was like in uh, Oregon or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, there's a sliding scale, or it's like not not it's a nonprofit. You can pay what you want or what you can, and then if you can't, then you can just volunteer for an hour. Um, 
I think there's something about that, like especially with the wind down of all the restaurants and like me just kind of questioning, like, what's the point? Like, what am I doing this for? Um, I would obviously and ultimately want to do something that is for everyone and helps people. Yeah. And so like a free restaurant would be amazing. Yeah. You know, but like restaurants, even if, you know, that's just it's so difficult. The margins are so impossible um, seeming. And um, and again, like most chefs, I'm speaking for myself here, but uh, I'm a horrible business person when it comes to like business because I'm a people mm-hmm. pleaser. And if I could just give everything away for free, yeah. I would. And, and you, so, I mean, you, you started a nonprofit or charitable model for mission Chinese in New York. Yeah, you're giving a percentage away, and this was like well before that virtue signaling or whatever you want to call it on, on some menus. Well, it's always was so when we started Anthony, when Anthony started Mission yeah. Street Food and Mission Chinese, we started Mission Chinese in San Francisco. That was a huge component of it, and it still is there. We don't own it or operate that mm-hmm. location. The owners own it and operate it, but they still donate seventy five cents of every entree. To uh, I think the San Francisco food. It's bank. really special and and it's noted and and really mission was definitely had a mission. So yeah. Danny Bowen, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.